in specific, we're just going to talk about what it means that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and what that means for how we ought to live our lives. We could turn this microphone down just a little bit. That would be great. Okay. So, first things first, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We will start there. We're going to cover this verse real quickly. Simple. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16. Paul in this verse is speaking to the church. So this is all of us put together. Verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 3. He says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So keep that in mind. Then go three chapters later. 1 Corinthians 6. And read in verse 19. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. It says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Okay. So... We'll start with this. As a whole church, we are called the temple of God. And as individuals, your physical body is called the temple of God. First question that comes up is what does that mean? Or more specifically, what purpose does a temple serve? So I'll just start by posing that question. What purpose does a temple serve? What is it for? You guys can just blurt out answers. What do you think? A holy place? Yep. Dwelling place of God? Worship? Yep. All good. All correct. Keep going. Anything else? Holy Spirit inhabits it? Yep. What about in respect to... Think about this in terms of physical temples that existed in Jesus' day. What purpose did they serve for the nations around them? Gathering place? Gathering place? Yeah, you could say that. An example? Yeah. Why would a, why would a you know, quote-unquote religious person want to go to a temple? Yep. To be closer to God. Yeah. What was back there? To meet God. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yep. So if we pause there, this all comes down to really one thing. All the answers that you guys gave are, they're all true, all correct. If you look at the purpose that temples served in Jesus' day and the purpose that they've always served, even to today, it has been that people have wanted somewhere they can go to encounter God. Whatever their God was, even if it was pagan temples, it was always because they wanted to have some kind of access point or some kind of connection point with God. So they would build a temple to accomplish that. And oftentimes they were very sumptuously decorated and embellished. So they would put a ton of money into this. Solomon's temple, everything was covered in gold. They had the best stone cutters, best masons, best woodworkers, best of the best of the craftsmen were put into building this place the embroidery, the carving, everything was the best that Israel had to offer. And the reason why it had to be the best was, number one, they were dedicating this to the God of heaven. They were dedicating this to the one true God, so they wanted it to look really nice, which makes sense. But the whole time this is happening, God tells Solomon, and Solomon acknowledges this, that God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. So God never has actually lived inside something that men have made with their hands. He has concentrated his presence in certain places under the old covenant. But Solomon says in 1 Kings chapter 8 that the heaven of heavens cannot contain God. So how much less this temple that I have built. So then you have this transition where from the old covenant into the new, you have this rejection of a physical place as now the focal point or access point that people have to God, and now you get into people being called the temple of God, which has never really been established widespread that that was what God was going to do. 
And it's amazing to me to think about that the heaven of heavens cannot contain God, but yet the Bible says that we can't, which is just an amazing fact. You can't really wrap your mind around it, but it's that God would rather, and it's actually more effective to have him concentrated and expressed through a human vessel, such as one that he has made, that is you, than anything that we would make with our hands or through anything that we would make with our hands. So this means what we're getting away from, first of all, is this idea that a physical place is where God dwells. Rather, it's where you dwell. Wherever you are is where God is or where his spirit is. Yes, do you have a comment? If I, if I understand my... Is the microphone working? It's, it's not on. The button's at the bottom. It's like a little, little tiny button. There you go. <laughs> um, if I understand my biblical history correctly, mm -hmm. most often when there was something significant that happened with the Jews, that they would say, let's build an altar. You know, and that was the beginning of a, of a place. Mm -hmm. And so when we make that significant change in our lives to embrace God, we're kind of, that's the beginning of us building that, that altar or that temple. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, making that sacrifice to God, giving your life to him. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Good point. So what, what, what we get into now is essentially that if wherever we are is where God's spirit is, then that means your body must be very, very important to God. Amen. It's very common just because of the, what I might call religious worm in the dirt mindset to believe that your body is evil and that because your body is evil, you are supposed to so focus so much on the spirit that you don't really think about your body a whole lot more or very much. And that mindset causes two extremes. The first is that you just simply don't care about your body. You don't really t care about taking care of yourself. Healthy lifestyles can be rejected. The second extreme is that you get into... Uh, self-condescension and sometimes self-harm and you guys have probably heard horror stories of this where people will um, you know we have things like cutting and self-mutilation and that kind of stuff where people get so anguished over this hatred for themselves and their own bodies that they hurt themselves because of it these are the two extremes both are wrong both are harmful the Bible says in Ephesians 5, that you're to nourish and cherish your own body and that you're supposed to love each other. And speaking to husbands, says husbands, love your wives as you would nourish and cherish your own body. So your body is designed to be honored. In Ephesians 1, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit given to you, this is like verses 13 through 15 of Ephesians 1, teaches that Christ paid such a high price to give you the Holy Spirit and the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, is the guarantee or down payment of the redemption of the purchased possession. So who knows what the purchased possession is? Blurt it out. Yeah. Specifically what though? This specific verse is talking about a part of you. That's not just generally all of you. It's a certain part of you. Your body. Yep. So your, your spirit, it says, is already become one spirit with Christ. So all of you was purchased, yes. But the part of you not yet redeemed is your body. Your spirit's been fully redeemed. It's one with Christ. Your soul is being renewed or your mind is being renewed. Your body's also been purchased, but it's not yet redeemed. So like if you win the lottery, you get your ticket, you got to bring it in to redeem the prize. Right? So what Jesus did was he shed his blood, he purchased you, and when he physically returns, what he's doing is redeeming what he won, what he purchased, and that's your, your body, and it's to glorify your body, right? So we're told, one moment, you can make a comment, we're told that the reason why we're to cherish, nourish, and honor our own bodies is because our bodies do not belong to us, they belong to him. And Christ wants your body just as much as he wants your spirit just as much as he wants your mind. So if you neglect the body, but then value the spirit, you're not actually really valuing yourself at all, nor are you valuing what Christ purchased. 
Because to God, your body is of, is of equal importance. Why? Because what is your body? What purpose does your body serve as a temple? Yeah. If we go back to what we started with, it houses the spirit, right? And a house for a spirit is so that you have a physical or tangible expression of the spirit. Because a spirit's invisible. You can't see a spirit. What you can see is your body. And so God wants you to take care of your body because your body shows off the spirit or it's meant to show off the spirit. And that's why he purchased your body. Amen. It's of great value to him. So Amy, you can make your comment now. Just a question. What mm -hmm. um, is the verse or verses that talk about us being one in spirit? First Corinthians six seventeen says, if you're joined to the Lord, you're one spirit with him. And then my other favorite is in Hebrews 2, uh, verses 10 and 11, says that both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one. That's Hebrews 2, verses 10 and 11. And then, yeah, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17. Verse 11 of Hebrews 2 is where it says are all of one. Um, so that's where we're one with him. Okay, so let's jump back in here. So we've established two things. A temple is meant to house the spirit. It's meant to be an access point for God. Temples were always meant to serve that purpose. God has thrown off what's been made with hands and has chosen to make you his temple instead because he made you. Number three, your body's been purchased just as well as your spirit has been purchased. So if you neglect or hate your own flesh, you hate something that Christ shed his blood for which is a very high price. There is no higher price than the blood of Jesus. So that makes your body just as valuable as your spirit. Do you guys see this? It took the shedding of Jesus' blood to purchase both your soul and your body, your spirit and your body, and God wanted both. So if he wanted both, then neglecting one or prioritizing one over the other is equally an equally bad offense. Now, here's what I'm not saying. Not saying that this means you have to, you get into where you idolize your body, where it's just all about, you always got to be working out, you always got to eat the best, you always want to look your best, because then it turns into glorifying your body rather than glorifying God. Your body was not designed to be what you focus on. It's designed to be of service to the spirit. The Bible refers to your body as a tent, for example. Second Peter says your body's like a tent. And then we have 1 Corinthians 6 saying that it's a temple of the Holy Spirit. It houses the Spirit. But here's the thing. Just like your house, if you invite somebody over to your home for whatever reason, and your home is in shambles, what does that say about your life? Right? The house that something lives in is a marker representation of what lives in that house, right? So your, your body, your house represents the spirit because it's the temple for the spirit. Amen. So if you want a person to see Christ or to see the spirit, which is invisible, he gave the body to serve that purpose. So this house is a representation of the spirit. It's meant to be that. It's meant to be a house for the spirit. You take care of this house that says something very good about the spirit. You don't take care of this house. It says something bad about the spirit. Amen. Did somebody have a comment? I feel like somebody's hand went up over here. Yeah. It's like the old story where somebody asked somebody, how, you, how are you today or something? And they said, oh, I'm fine. And he said, you should tell your face. Um, <laughs> you know, do we represent Christ? You know. Right. In an mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Oh, yeah. I think it's interesting how you put that because the way that you kind of put that and how our bodies are meant to glorify God and that our bodies are the temple to do the work of the Holy Spirit, it then puts it more into context, sickness and disease, because it makes sense to me how that comes upon us from the enemy because we, we know that's not from God. Because if he can attack our bodies, then it renders us in some ways useless to the kingdom 
because his goal is to take us out as early as possible for those that are chasing after him mm -hmm. to do his will in the earth. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, that, that makes sense and kind of puts that together more, you know, it mm -hmm. kind of fortifies that. Yeah. So that's Amen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Sickness and infirmity is designed to, designed to immobilize you ultimately. That's what the devil wants. If he can't kill you, he wants to keep you inert so that you're not working for the kingdom, right? So you're not functioning properly. And besides sickness and infirmity, sin does that as well. Romans chapter 6, we'll get into this in more detail in a bit here, but Romans 6 says that instead of presenting your members, which is talking about your body, as an instrument for sin or unrighteousness, it should be now an instrument for God, for righteousness now. So that really presents you with two choices. You are either surrendering your body to the work of the devil, which is sin, or you're surrendering body, your body to the work of God, which would be righteousness. And so if your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit and you take this temple for the Holy Spirit and you yield it over to sin, then essentially what you're doing is dressing the Spirit of God in sin, which you really don't want to do. <laughs> Not a good thing, right? So here's what we have to get into then. If your body is that important to God that he would shed his blood for it, then what you do with your body is a lot more important, much more consequential than you realize. There is, uh, before I get into this in more detail, there's this old uh, heresy that's been around ever really since Christianity began, or the faith began, called Gnosticism. And in Gnosticism, uh, it is taught essentially uh, that what's most important for a person's relationship with God is their knowledge. And everything is all about knowledge. It's, it's a very Greco-Roman perspective. It's that the ascension, exaltation, enlightenment is all about what you know. What you do with your body doesn't matter. That's essentially what Gnosticism teaches. And so you see influences of this in 1 John. Like if you read 1 John, you have verses where he says, if anyone says that he has no sin, he's a liar. He deceives himself. The reason why he was saying that is because there were people going around saying, oh, I have no sin because sin doesn't exist your actions, what you do with your body doesn't matter. It's just about your knowledge, right? This was a heresy that was going around. So it caused believers to start to think, oh, I can live the same way I was before because what I do with my body doesn't matter. It's just about my knowledge, right? And this has crept into churches today. And you see this maybe not as blatantly or as obscenely, but its influence is still around. And what happens is on a small scale, you have people simply neglecting their bodies in any way, shape, or form. Now, this can be bad habits. It can be sin. But it can also be things like not prioritizing a healthy lifestyle. It can be gluttony. It can be uh, uh, being sedentary. It can be laziness. These are all expressions of a person neglecting their physical health because they think that, oh, spiritual growth is, is just about what I know. You know, as long as I pray and as long as I read the Bible and maintain those habits, then, then I'm okay, then I'm fine, right? That's an influence of this heresy called Gnosticism, which is essentially that my spirit is what's important to, to God. My body is not as important. So I should prioritize the spirit and I don't have to pay so much attention to my body. This is an attitude that does a lot of harm because, again, what, what this perspective causes is this idea that what I do with my mind or spirit as I grow in knowledge is what God wants, but my body isn't all that useful. Then what happens is you start to yield to more sin. You become gradually more unhealthy physically, and it limits your ability to even do work for the kingdom of God because you've been immobilized, right? Your heart to stone. Yeah. And your heart turns to stone too. Yeah. It hardens your heart as well. So it's really important that we don't yield to this idea that your body isn't as important to God. Because again, and I can't emphasize this enough, the same blood that was shed to purchase your spirit also purchased your body. Amen? So God, God wants your body. It is very important to him. And he made it for a purpose. In fact, if you go all the way back to Genesis, when, when he created male and female, it's unique because it's, states that Adam and Eve were created in God's image, right? And if you look at the Hebrew where it says image and likeness, that Hebrew word for image is talking about a physical representation or resemblance of something. 
being made in his image is, is actually talking about giving the spirit of God something tangible that can live and move and, and be seen and handled. This is why you see in the beginning of first John, where John talks about how the word of life, our eyes have seen, we heard him, our hands handled him. We touched him. The point was Jesus Christ was the, the image of the invisible God. And we were able to handle him physically because he had a physical body. What made Jesus the image of what was invisible was the fact that he had a physical body that was perfected and glorified. So when God made Adam and Eve, he made a physical expression of himself. That was his purpose in doing so. So this means we can't actually be the image of God unless we have a body. And that's why when Christ returns, he gives you a new body so that you can live perfectly as his image for all of eternity, forever and ever. Amen. Right? So you're going to have a body for all of eternity. The only time you're not going to is if you happen to die before Christ returns and you'll just be waiting in heaven for a little while until you get a new one. But other than that, we're all going to have a body still. All of us, every single one of you will have a body. And it was, it's all part of it. You can look at it like the Trinity. You can't, you can't neglect or prioritize either the Son over the Father or the spirit over the sun, because they're all one. They're all of equal importance. When God created you, he made you a three-part being on purpose. He gave you a soul and a body to service your spirit, just as the son and the spirit and the father are all as one. They all function as a single unit. It's the same way for, for how God created you. Your body is intended to be a house for your spirit. You take good care of the house. It is a good representation of the spirit that lives in that house. Amen. Okay, so practically then, what does this mean as uh, what we do with our bodies? So number one, let's go to Romans chapter 12. Verse one. Says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So pause there. I'm just going to add a couple verses that are back in first Corinthians six to so keep your finger on Romans 12, one verses 13 and 14 of first Corinthians six says foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So I think it's interesting that he states this this way. We'll go back to Romans 12, 1 in a moment. He says, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. He's basically establishing, why do you have a stomach? It's to digest food, but realize God's going to destroy both. So having a body is not just about filling your stomach. That's his point. Yes, your stomach was made for food. But God will get rid of both your stomach and your food. So that's not the point of living. Just to enjoy what you eat and have a full tummy. Right? We've been talking about that with fasting. Then he establishes, hey, your body's also not for sexual immorality. It's not just about enjoying what feels good either. It's not what your body's for. He establishes your body is for the Lord. And then he says the Lord for the body. That's interesting. Why would he say the Lord, Jesus, is also for your body? And your body for him. He's establishing that God made your body to be of service to the Lord. And he also intends the Lord to be of service to your body. What this means is that Christ wants to empower you bodily just as much as he does spiritually. And he wants you to use your body to serve him. It's intended to be this cycle. Christ gives you power to live in your body, use your body for him. That's why you have your body. It's not about food. It's not about what feels good. 
It's about the Lord and by using your body for him and his work. Yes. That as well, of course, yes, the church, if you include the church, also for that. So then go back to Romans 12, 1. First thing he says, I beseech you, therefore, he's pleading with us, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, reasonable service in Greek simply means your acceptable or sensible worship. Typically, when you think of the word worship, we associate that word with, in many cases, at least the way I grew up as a musician, it was the songs that I sang, right? It was the lyrics, it was the instrumentation, it was, and if you're really fanatic, it was the, you know, it was going to the camps and the conferences and the, the more exclamatory and the more glamorous the songs were. And, and if you really, really got into it, the, the outreach and volunteer, <clears throat> volunteer events and all the things that you did seemingly, seemingly to express or physically express your worship to God, that seemed to be, at least for me, what worship was. That's what I associated with worship. But if you want just cut and dry, straightforward, what worship is according to the Bible, Romans 12, 1 says it's giving your body to the Lord as a living sacrifice. And it says, it doesn't say that that is the best of your worship. That says that's just your reasonable worship, which means... This is like bare minimum here. <laughs> this is just basic, basic worship. It's most reasonable that your worship is simply giving your body to God as a living sacrifice. So living sacrifice, that phrase is actually an oxymoron because when you sacrifice something, it dies. That's the whole point of a sacrifice, right? You'd kill something and then you'd burn it on an altar and it's, it's kaput. It's no more. It's just ashes. And this says, be a living sacrifice. That's why it's an oxymoron, because how can you have something that's dead and yet it's still living? Why do you think he says it that way? Who's got an answer? Dead to yourself, right? Exactly. So you're dead but alive, which means you're living dead to or no longer in the flesh or sin, right? That's what you're sacrificing. It's, you're sacrificing yourself in that sense. But of course, you keep living in that state of self-sacrifice. And Jesus is the one who modeled that perfectly. Right? And that's your reasonable worship. So if we're going to put in a single scripture what it means to honor God with your body, that's using your, or giving up your body as a living sacrifice. One thing that's important to add is that, I mentioned this earlier, Romans 6 says to use your body as an instrument for righteousness. So number one, we've got righteousness. So you're, of course, dead to sin. Next, you have, uh, let's actually turn here. I don't have it written down, but I think it would be good to look at it. Go to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verses 20 and 21. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. says, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor. <coughs> Sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. So your body is also a vessel, a temple. They're one and the same. So the first thing we have stated in Romans as being how you use your body as a living sacrifice is be dead to sin, yield yourself to righteousness instead. That's the first thing. <clears throat> the second thing, this is taught in 2 Timothy 2 here, is that you give your body to be prepared and useful for every good work. And note the fact that he says it has to be prepared for every good work. In other words, it's not just something you can wake up and do without preparation. Right? 
So if you yield your body to righteousness and you're not walking in sin, at least not intentionally, you receive God's correction in that sense. What this allows is for, this is what we've talked about the past few weeks, is it allows your body to be disciplined. It produces self-control. When you have self-control, it makes it easy for you, easier, I should say, for you to submit to the master's every good work. In other words, just to give you a practical example, let's say you've made a practice of Let's just say being a little lazier than you should be. You just spend a lot of time sitting around, not, not being very active, not doing a whole lot. And all of a sudden, you are told or called by God in some way to go spend, let's say, just the next 14 days or next two weeks giving yourself entirely to traveling around, serving the poor and the hungry, making disciples, laboring in the work of the gospel like that. Concentrated, that's what you focus on. And you have done none of that bef- formerly, before that. You think it's going to be difficult to have energy while you're doing that? Yeah, it'll be difficult. It'll be really tough. So realize, when we're talking about things like physical exercise and self-discipline, when we're talking about fasting, all of that is about staying prepared for every good work. That's what it's for, ultimately. Because if you have a healthy body, a healthy engine, if you will, It allows you to be more effective in the master's every good work. So exercise, self-discipline, fasting, those things are not just about keeping your body in submission. It's not just about keeping the flesh under. That's important, absolutely. But doing that is for something. Why keep your flesh under? Why does it matter? Because until you're cleansed from the latter, that means until you're cleansed from the works of the flesh, You're not able bodily to be prepared for every good work. In other words, Paul here is trying to establish that the healthier your body is, the more effective you will be in the work of the kingdom. That's the point. You'll have more energy. That'll be longer lasting. You'll be stronger physically. Without this, and this is what he teaches in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27. He says, I discipline my body bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So if you look at that Greek word, I'm just going to pull it up real quick. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27. KJV translates it as castaway. And it means unapproved, rejected, worthless, cast away, rejected, or reprobate. It's a very strong word. It's stronger than you would expect. He's essentially trying to say that if you are not physically disciplined and then you go and try to preach to others, this essentially means you, you try to do kingdom work, right? Make disciples it actually ends up causing you to end up rejected or cast away. And he even says worthless. This is interesting. Now, we just read in 2 Timothy 2 that what makes you useful for the master's work is being prepared, always. But if you are not keeping your body in subjection, what ends up happening is it causes you, because of the lack of, ultimately, of the energy and the self-control to continue in that work, it causes you to end up useless to the kingdom. And that's what this is talking about, 1 Corinthians 9. So taking care of your body is extremely valuable to the work of the kingdom. You will be able to get more done, be more effective at it, when you have a healthy body. And even things that you don't think take a lot of physical health, even just speaking, Even study, like the Bible says in Ecclesiastes, that much study is wearisome to the flesh. Studying the Bible is harder if you're physically unhealthy. Because it's wearisome to the flesh. I don't know if you guys have noticed, if you try to study for three, four hours, and you're not very healthy physically, it's tough. It's really tough. Having a healthy body is good for your mind. 
it helps you renew your mind even better because it, you, your mind functions at a higher level. And then you have the work, like the kind of thing that Paul did. If you're walking around preaching and you don't, he didn't have modern means of travel, so he had to walk everywhere. And if it wasn't walking, it was horseback. All this traveling, plus you've got the shipwrecks, you've got the cold, the fasting, the trials, the persecution, being stoned, scourged, whipped. If Paul was walking around either really, really overweight or scrawny as a stick, he would not have been able to do and endure all of that and not only survive it, but be able to be stoned, then prayed over and get up and go right back into the city and do it all over again <laughs> without missing a beat. And you find it interesting that Paul talks about, like in 2 Corinthians 11, he talks about how he was in cold and fastings often. And he, was, he wasn't talking about willful fastings there. In that context, he was talking about fasting because he had to. It gives us one example in Acts, uh, I believe it's in 20, 27 of Acts, where he was shipwrecked on the island of Malta, and he had spent two weeks before that without food because they just simply didn't have enough for the entire crew. And they were all forced not to eat for those two weeks. They had a little bit of food left at the end, and they were able to eat together. That's one practical example where you have Paul in these difficult situations because of the gospel where he's limited from, from eating simply because of the circumstance that he's in. Now, if he had not made a lifestyle of disciplining and fasting his body by choice before that, it would have made those persecutions a lot more difficult. So we might not be experiencing the same thing that Paul did in his day, but what this means essentially, practically, for everyday life is that the physical challenges that you face throughout life are more easily overcome when before that you had made a practice of being physically disciplined. Makes it easier to overcome sickness and infirmity. Makes it easier to overcome injury. Makes it easier to have a sharper mind, the healthier you that you are, that you are physically. So that when you do keep the flesh disciplined, when you are preaching, you stay qualified rather than disqualified. You stay approved, you stay useful, to the master's work rather than useless. Amen? So if you want to have a motivation to be healthier physically, this is supposed to be it. It's not really about having a beach body. That's not the point, right? <laughs> hey, if that's your motive and that motivates you, fine, but that's not useful to the master's work, right? That's not the point of this. The point is that you're maintaining this physical health so that you have a sharper mind which is for the kingdom's work, and that's your study, and that's your pre preaching, so that you have a stronger body, so that when you become weary or tired because of work, you're able to overcome that weariness more quickly. It keeps you stronger. It keeps you maintaining more energy, more life. It allows you to study longer. It allows you to preach longer. It allows you to just simply be more effective at anything and everything that you do for the kingdom. That's what this is for, ultimately. So if we're to wrap this up, go back to what we started with, which comes from, uh, reset my notes here, starting with 1 Corinthians 6, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. This tells us at the point of having a physical body is to make your body a physical expression of the characteristics of the Spirit of God. That's what your body's for. In order to do that, or to fulfill that, I should say, this includes the Master's work. So just look at the life of Jesus. If you want just to read about a practical example of how somebody lives their life when they're yielded to this, look at the life that Jesus lived. There was not a moment in Jesus' life where he was not available, not ready, or not able to do any work that the Father called him to do. Even after praying all night, regardless of what it was. If God needed him to cross the Sea of Galilee, 
to preach for whatever reason, to walk any number of miles to get to a certain city by a certain time, to go any amount of time without food. And think, for instance, Jesus, when he fed the 5,000, this is a lot of people don't realize this, when he fed the 5,000, I don't actually think he ate when that happened because they got into a boat right after that to cross the sea and they, the disciples forgot to bring food in the boat and they offered Jesus food because they figured he was hungry. And why would they figure he was hungry if he just ate with the 5,000? This doesn't quite compute. And then Jesus said, I have food to eat of which you do not know. My food is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. We went over this last time, right? So the point was, Jesus knew that sometimes he had to deny himself food, even though there was plenty for everyone else, for whatever the reason was. We don't know. Point being, Jesus was always ready, always available, and always able to do any work that the Father gave him to do without any physical limitation. And when you see Jesus live this out, it's incredible what he was able to do, how efficient he was, how much he was able to accomplish in such a short amount of time. And if Jesus wasn't physically healthy, he just simply would not have been able to do that. And that's the point. And so, yeah, yeah, Jesus, Jesus had a lot of physical demand placed on him, a lot. And way more than I think most of us ever see. And so it was, it's obvious that Jesus was uh, healthy physically in order to be able to do that. So <clears throat> again, finishing to wrap this up. Your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit, which means your body is meant to be a physical expression of the characteristics of the Holy Spirit. In order to show off the Holy Spirit, it requires physical works. And you will find, because of this, that physical obedience, think about this, I'll explain momentarily, this is very important. Physical obedience, in many cases, is actually more effective for your spiritual growth than things you might consider spiritual activities. So, when you are reading the Bible or praying, sometimes we think, oh, that's, that's where spiritual growth is at. That's how, that's how I grow. That's, that's how I increase. But, again... If we go back to the principle that he purchased your body just as readily as he purchased your spirit, then what you do with your body is equally important. So think about it this way. If your reasonable worship is to give your body a sacrifice for the master's work, then how can you grow spiritually, which in the next verse of Romans 12 says is to renew your mind to be transformed, if you're not doing anything with your body? If your body's not given as a sacrifice, then the renewing of your mind would be useless because the renewing of your mind is to transform what you do with your body. Without physical obedience, there is no spiritual growth because the physical obedience is the, the effect of that transformation that takes place in your mind. Then you have verses like James 4 verse 7 that says, submit to God, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. It attaches the devil fleeing from you to your submission to God. Your submission to God is, is physical obedience, choices that you make, what you do with your body. And then you take, for example, even the ministry of Jesus is so remarkable how you see this happening in his life. I just read about this yesterday. He gets baptized in the Jordan River. He's about to begin his ministry. The first thing that he does is it says the spirit immediately, Mark 1 says, drove him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he fasted for 40 days. And then in Luke, it says, and when the devil had ended every temptation, it only records three, but it doesn't say three was all there was. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Do you know when that next opportune time was? Yep. The garden of Gethsemane. That was his last temptation before he was crucified. Every time in between you see the devil show up in Jesus' life, it's always very brief, and he stomps it out before anything happens. And he, Jesus said, the devil has nothing in me the whole time. But while he's in the wilderness, what is he doing? He's allowing himself to be tempted 
by everything the devil has in his arsenal. Absolutely everything. So it says when the devil had ended again, every temptation, not just three, only three are recorded. But when he ended every temptation, he departed from him until later, which is at the end of his ministry. And then it says, then Jesus went in the power of the spirit to Galilee. What gave him that power that carried him through the rest of his ministry? Yes, it was the, the Holy Spirit in the Jordan River and that he had overcome every single one of the devil's temptations. So by the time he began his ministry, he was absolutely physically self-controlled and disciplined in every temptation. He was 100% submitted and obedient. And that was an essential part of what gave him that power when he began his ministry, which means for us, well, I should say what it doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that if you do one 40-day fast and try to tell the devil to level against you everything that he has in one moment, that that'll, <laughs> that that'll give you power. That's not what this means, okay? I'm not saying that you should do that. I don't recommend that. <laughs> the reason that worked for Jesus is because he was the son of God and he, he, could, he, could, he could endure that all at once in 40 days, okay? What it does mean, though, for you is that conquering physically, the resistance to temptation through prayer and fasting is an essential part of what empowers you to do the master's work without limitation and without infirmity. That's the example that's, that Jesus is setting. He's trying to show us that when your lifestyle is keeping the flesh under, when your lifestyle is fasting, when your lifestyle is disciplined, and you're resisting the temptation to let the flesh rule in any and every area of your life, it allows you to be fully submitted to the works of the Spirit. And when you're fully submitted to the works of the Spirit, that means your body has been given as a living sacrifice, and that is your worship. So what this really teaches us at the end of the day is that the more you submit your body to the works of the kingdom, the more you'll see multiplication of growth in your life because that that physical obedience that submission to God is your resistance to the devil it's your worship to God it's the effect of the transformation of your mind or of your life through the renewal of your mind the benefits are endless really so this means you simply have to remember that renewing your mind, reading the word and prayer is about changing and transforming what you do physically, what you do with your body is what is intended to be transformed with the renewing of your mind. When we think of transformed by the renewing of your mind, we think we just lock ourselves in a prayer closet and if you pray enough, then all of a sudden you'll just become like a lamp and all of a sudden you walk around with a shining face like Moses and people will just fall at your feet and get saved. And we think that that's just how things are going to happen, but it's just not going to happen that way. It's not how it works. He literally just got done saying, the point is to give your body to the master's work. So you should renew your mind. Why should you renew your mind? So you can give your body, Right. A living sacrifice, submission of your body to the works of the kingdom. That's what the renewal of your mind is for. And at, the more you submit your body to that, the more you'll see that transformation. Because that's the effect of your mind being renewed. So, action steps. Just to summarize it. Physical obedience begins, this is what we've been talking about the past few weeks, with ultimately a healthy lifestyle. Overall, yes, you could say eating well and getting exercise, but this includes fasting. Eating well, exercising, and fasting. That's part of physical obedience. Number two, obedience to the works of the kingdom themselves. So that can be serving selflessly. So anything that you can do to serve someone else with your body is what this is about. Somebody else is in need. Somebody needs help moving. Somebody needs help with food. Anything you can think of. Someone needs help physically go to them and serve them. Do something with your body. That would be one example. Second thing is just simply preaching the gospel, making disciples. People in your life who are in need 
of the truth. Go to them. Share the word of God with them. Be there for them. Be in their lives. Just because we have cell phones doesn't mean you can just be in arguments with people in Facebook comments and think that that's your ministry. Okay? That's, that's not what this is about. Physical obedience with your body. Go somewhere. Do something for someone else rather than yourself. That's what this is about. Serve someone. Make a disciple out of somebody. Exercise. Eat well and fast. That's what this is about. You do those things with your body. And then, in addition to that, you pray, and you get in your word, and you study. That's the transformation of your life. That's the lifestyle that Jesus modeled, and that's the life of power in the Spirit. Amen? Amen. Okay. Any questions or comments? Yes. Um, yeah, there's two, two, I guess, verses that come to mind um, that are also related to the body, and one is the eye being a, a lamp to the body and what we let in, you know, either creates light and life throughout our body or darkness. Mm -hmm. And then the other being um, the tongue and how your tongue can corrupt your entire body by what we say. And James mm -hmm. talks about, you, you bridle the horse, you control the horse. Yes. Or the small rudder of a ship controls the whole ship and how that impact of our tongue on everything else in our, bo our body. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if these are... They seem a little bit less focused on maybe the health of our body, but scripture talks about they have a, they have a direct impact on the health of your body or, or yeah. on your body, yeah. I guess. Yeah, so absolutely. What, what we let in through our eyes and what we let out through our mouth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, it's absolutely all included. Um, that would have been probably the next place we would have gone if we were to continue on this topic about what you look at, what you let in through your eyes and ears, and then what you talk about. So. Just the scriptures he mentioned, James chapter 3 talks about your words, and then Matthew, <clears throat> Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about your, your eye, Matthew 6, the lamp of your body. So what you look at is important, what you say is very important. So James chapter 3 about your words, if you want to look into that more, it's also an essential part of this. Yeah. Hello? Button at the bottom. Little, Little white, it's very, very small. Yeah. Hello? There you go. So I just wanted to share this uh, Jesus quote. I don't know where it is in the Bible. Uh, maybe David could... Um, decipher that but a uh, buddy of mine and I uh, we uh, connected over this but so no one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl instead he puts it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light and this uh, it's really we connected over this because we're both uh, working on kind of getting out of our shells and, and not being so shy letting go of shyness and uh, Connecting with others, I grew up very uh, shy and anxious. I was always the quiet guy. I was always the man of few words. Um, but I want to speak more, talk to more people, and and uh, yeah, just kind of let go of that shyness. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it certainly applies to that. So that's Matthew five fourteen. I just pulled it up through sixteen. The first thing he says before that is, "You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden." Then, yeah, he repeats, uh, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your, your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Yeah, good passage. Amen. Okay, any more questions, comments about any of this? Yes. So in order to be believed, we have to be believable. Yes. <laughs> yep. Yep. Anyone else? Okay, the goal, the goal with this was ultimately, I should say it starts with adding to you all a conviction that having a strong and healthy body is essential to spiritual work and it is not any less spiritual. That was ultimately the point of this. You guys feel like that conviction was increased in your life? I only found one verse that I think refutes that slightly, but that's if, you're, if your hand causes you, I think it's if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter <laughs> eternal life with one less foot. Yeah. Yes. So I think there is a hierarchy, but, but it's not right. <laughs> maybe yeah. as extreme as we thought it was. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So David, earlier when you said Jesus fasted for 40 days and you made it sound like 
he was he was God, which is why he was able to do that. Aren't we supposed to view him as a man during that time and not as God? Otherwise, I tend to use that as an excuse, and I'll go, "Well, he was that was Jesus. I couldn't do that." Right, right. I want to comment more on that? Yeah, good point. So the only thing that only Jesus could do there, um, well, number one to start, there's a whole lot people, whole lot more people other than Jesus who fasted for forty days, right? So it's not just a son of God thing to, to fast for 40 days. That's, that's across the board. Anybody can do that. However, for Jesus, what was unique about it is that within that span of 40 days, he overcame every temptation the devil possibly had against him. And it didn't come back again until the Garden of Gethsemane before he was crucified because that was the last hard thing that he had to go through. If you, in the span of 40 days, had to endure every temptation that would ever come against you your whole life in that one span. I don't think any of us would make it. <laughs> I just don't. I mean, like I said, I wouldn't recommend praying for that to happen so you can just get it over with because it'll probably kill you, to be honest. I, don't, I just don't think that's going to happen. So that would be the part of that that was unique to Jesus. The other part that's unique to him is that you don't, you, you see him from that point forward without any form of submission to the devil at all. Whereas throughout our lives, this is not a cop-out obviously, but throughout our lives, we're constantly growing in our obedience. We fail, we make mistakes, we get back up, we grow from it. Whereas with Jesus, it says that he was 100% obedient and without sin or deceit that was ever found in his mouth. So he was, he was sinless by nature. And so that allowed him to be able to essentially overcome every single one of those temptations without even a single failure his whole life. We are going to fail, and that's part of the learning curve, essentially, so that we grow. What's that? In grace. In grace. Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. You mentioned this scripture, but I wanted to pull it up. First Thessalonians 5.23. Mm-hmm. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, your whole soul, we could say, and your whole body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are a three-part being. Mm-hmm. Most Christians aren't even aware of that statement. And most people just walk around, like you were saying, Gnosticism, with a soul and a body. But we have the Holy Spirit who will set us apart so we can completely, with his peace, be led of his spirit mm-hmm. to be whole, spirit, soul, and body, and therefore blameless when he comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great verse just to remind you that he, he wants your, your whole spirit, soul, and body. He wants all of you, right? He wants all of you to be preserved blameless. So he wants that blamelessness in your body just as much as he wants it in your spirit. So, yes, absolutely. Any last comments or questions about anything? Okay. Amen. Sounds good. Um, all right. I will, um, I just want to pray for you guys real quick before we go, and then we will do the offering as well. Thank you for that. So if you'd like to give the cash or check, put your hand up until you get an envelope. Laura will pass them around. Again, please keep your hand up until you get one. Otherwise, you can use the link that will show up on the screen momentarily here if you'd like to do it on your phone. Um, so, Father, thank you for uh, everyone in this room and for their sanctification. Uh, for my sanctification, for the process that you are taking us all through in being set apart for your work and purpose. I pray that you would teach us just as your word teaches, that we would see our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit, that we would value and love and honor our bodies as you have called us to, that we would always be prepared, useful for the master in every good work, that we would, as the Son of God, be without physical limitation, uh, unrestricted, unlimited, unbounded, uh, and so that we'd be able to be useful for you who, who are our master in everything, Lord God. I thank you for wisdom and understanding. Just help us to apply what was taught and understood this morning. Uh, bring this, these, these teachings, these scriptures to our remembrance in moment of need. Help us to be able to pick up the baton uh, of this and be able to pass it to other people. Help us to be able to teach others um, about about what you say in your word. And thank you for the Holy Spirit that helps us and empowers us to walk out the truth. Uh, thank you for making us citizens of your kingdom. I just pray that you'd be honored and glorified through us in our lives um, and make us full of joy in your presence as you have shown us the path of, of life 
in your presence is fullness of joy. So help us to walk away just from this room this morning, refreshed and renewed, full of joy that we carried into the rest of our week. Um, and just help us grow, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for being here. Uh, do you have a comment? Sorry, yeah, just one more thing. God, yeah, go like, for it. <laughs> um, making me say this. Um, can we just pray about the fear of the Lord and wisdom? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, God, Jesus, thank you that um, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. I just pray now that the lies that keep us from fearing you and your word when you speak and when you reveal yourself to us, those lies are broken in all of us here, in our families, and everybody that we share your word of life with. We take the authority that you've given us to break those lies now in your name.